This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In today's program, we're looking at historical comics, And I'm talking to a couple of female creators about their work, which explore how history can be depicted in comics and the history of comic creators themselves. In the second half of the programme, I'm going to be talking to historian Alice Loxton about her book Uproar, Satire, Scandal and Printmakers in Georgian London, which delves into the lives of early cartoon satirists Thomas Rowlandson Isaac Cruikshank and James Gilray in an interview we recorded at the Cartoon Museum in London. However, in the first half of today's programme, I'm talking to cartoonist Teresa Robertson about her recently published autobiographical comics and illustrating the educational pamphlet The Comical Eyes British Monarchy from Alfred the Great to Charles III, written by Leo Schultz, which tells the history of the royalty in Britain and is published by Self-Made Hero. My Q&A with Teresa was recorded in the back room of a pub in Brighton, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. You've been a professional illustrator for a number of years, but you've only started working in comics more recently. When you were doing kind of illustration work for children's books and so on, were you using any of the language of comics or have you now kind of adapted your style to a different medium? Well, yeah, no, in fact, when I first started um, in 1986, I went along to my local authority, which was Haringey Council at the time, because I wanted a job in illustration that day. I trained as a teacher, I thought that was a bit too scary. I still do bits of teaching, but um, went along saying, could you use my style in your um, leaflets? I can see you've got like a leaflet for kids with profound learning difficulties or... Um, for the court's justice, the youth justice service mm. and the children's homes and it was a very specific ask so any students I say to them sometimes think where well, you think you could see your work and the guy Simon who I'm still friends with to this day said oh yeah we could and that then led to the British Council because they uh, they they said we can't use photographs for quite a lot of this work uh, um, mm. so a leaflet for a kid going into a children's saying this is the rules this is and with friendly enough um, illustration. So that was the beginning. I was 26 then. I'm a little bit older than that now. But it is where it it all started. Ah. But actually doing the graphic um, stories was more, funny enough, from Brighton, where my son was a few years ago at the art college. And Nicholas Streeton from um, uh, Ladies Do Comics came to talk to him. And Uh he came back to me and said, Mum, you've kept saying you want to do a story about um, my my mum, his granny, dying. Which I know these things seem sad, but they can be strangely... Well, oh, indeed. Yeah. And that was the first one I ever wrote. And then that, yeah. um, you know, was it, I sent, entered, entered it to the Observer competition and it kind of got somewhere, not didn't win or anything. But mm. so I realised at that point, I really like this way of um, linking images together to tell short stories or longer. Yeah. Well, I noticed on your um, uh, bibliography on your website that you did a previous project called Christmas 1964. Um, was that a traditional children's illustrated book? Because it felt like that's also bringing some kind of element of biography into uh, storytelling. 
Right. Oh, yeah. No, that was on my MA at the a very good place to do an MA, um, the Anglia Ruskin in Cambridge. Mm. Absolutely right. And I did do a, 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 a the tutor, Martin Silsbury, said, think of your best memory. And mine was waking up on Christmas morning. Sorry, it's very good that you're more on it with people's work than think about. <laughs> um, and for me, it was waking up on Christmas morning with the weight of the stocking on my feet. And ah. that sent me back into a memory about 15 cousins in this um, lovely vicarage and I still use elements of those memories in some of my stories oh. now of um, so I'm doing a graphic autobiography yeah. yeah it's interesting how these things keep coming around well, yes, you, you know do different that, parts you know, of your that career that made me think then about Christmas that was probably 10 years ago I was on mm. that MA so I'd forgotten I'd done that but anyway mm. <laughs> yeah. um, so as I said your most recent project, uh, The Comical Eyes of British Monarchy from Alfred the Great to Charles III. Uh, it's interesting that it's published by Self Made Hero because they're a publisher who normally do graphic novels. And this is the only kind of second floppy comic, uh, to use a slightly derisory <laughs> term, uh, that they've done. They previously did one uh, about Jeremy Corbyn. He's um, my local MP. Ah, <laughs> uh, but it, it, this seems like actually a, a really great product because every year when you have a new cohort of kids doing some kind of history GCSE, it's going to come in well, useful. It'd be nice. Yeah, because um, shall I say now that we'd I was asked last February to start on it, and we didn't know that the Queen would go and die in the and that square had been penciled because everything had to be approved each uh, each square at each family I did I'd sort of send off for approval um, so suddenly that square was going to change and uh, oh well done look at that you're on it already and where um, yeah where we'd finished it with the Queen suddenly it was going to include Charles so we're kind of on it about that and then um, you know, maybe it'll last for a while because we've got William, a nod to him as well. But mm. um, but to have, I think for kids to have an overview on one sheet, um, it, it's kind of, I didn't know all that history, but now I do. And, and I think, you know, and we'll, we'll go on to your comics in a minute. Um, in general, having some kind of illustrated guide that just has, I mean, this is a mixture of little kind of factoids about each of the, uh, the royals, uh, little kind of drawings of them. Occasionally, here and there, a little bit of uh, history that's also depicted visually. I mean, I think that sort of thing works really well as a learning um, guide, and I think it's a shame that there aren't more things like this. Yeah, well, I mean, it means that if, if you um, are English is your second language, or small children, I've got grandkids, there's uh, five-year-old twins, and they were fascinated by it all and had to go through the stage of, is that blood? And I'd say, yeah, what, you know, the, the Henry VIII's wives having a head start, and then they get over that, we're, oh, it's a long time ago. But the visually... <laughs> it's historical blood. Yeah, it's a lot, <laughs> it doesn't happen now, hopefully. But um, no, where you can see what's going on if you're quite young, or even older, you can recognise who people are, and then hopefully read, the, it was, we went more for the pictures and then the words back it up. Mm. Um, yeah, so that people can instantly, instantly see what's going on. I mean, it must have been quite a complicated thing, uh, almost like planning a jigsaw in advance, just getting that much information well, was, on a page. We were, the <laughs> remit was like a map. Mm. Um, and so, um, and there was a writer, Leah Schultz, involved. So he sort of gave me some ideas to, but I realized, well, okay, if you want it as a map, um, we if it folds like that so that's 12 boxes then and i th thought well front um front cover back cover that leaves 10 boxes how many families and then blow me if there aren't 10 it's like how the house <laughs> of you know thrones whatever it's called what's it called that yeah uh, game, of, game thrones. of thrones 
Um, they, you know, if you bunch the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes together, which, <laughs> of which there's 16, so that's uh, easy Perfect. for a square, isn't it? You know. That was very thoughtful of them. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to put that one of them died in Froome because my son, one of my sons, <laughs> lives in Froome, but uh, so it's a bit cheeky. But um, and then the four for the the um, Normans and so on. Mm. So it fairly neatly that was very lucky that you've got ten families. Um, yeah, because the Sax Coburgs, there's only one of them anyway, Edward the um, Seventh, so that we could bunch in with the Windsors and they can mm. rustle along together. Yeah. But um, but that's luck, you know, and if there's wanted to be a series, you know, I mean, there's talk of whether the, the writer would love it if there's maybe the Greek myths or, you know, American presidents or, you know, but the, whether they're the luck of that they would all fit neatly into, mm. yeah, that's when it's lucky or something. But Conspiracy. <laughs> deep state and all sorts of things. <laughs> Indeed. And then in the last November, they they um, sort of made it said on the back it would be a waste of space to have just a blank sheet. Can you just do the family tree? And that was a that was the sort of more complicated. We're like, oh, how do I do that? But we got there, you know. And then the one thing they made me change was um, I've got a car crash. I've got interesting deaths on the back, um, where most of the more recent they just died of smoke of um well old age that's not so interesting but i did put a car crash on and they said no 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 that's really insensitive um that was for diana so that was removed as you're saying you um kind of you started dipping your toe into uh graphic novels um through entering the first graphic novel competition in 2014 yes yeah uh and that was remind me which one it is because i've got all of the uh your oh right, well here. done. Yeah. Um, well, I won't. You'll remember better than me. There's because oh, the, uh, um, both Myriad and Ladies Do Comics have been amazing at um, uh, well, and the Observer competition. You know, there's competitions each year that people can enter, and it helps you focus on a um, usually you know four pages or whatever of a story. Um, so the, the yeah, um, I've entered the um, oh yeah that. So, the perfect death is different again. That was okay. for um, uh, friends on the shelf. They're another lovely publication. So they do autobiographical stories, um, four pages and or a thousand words, but mostly written. So the remit for that is that if you've got a you know stories that have to be real. Um, but I was approached to could you do us a drawn one? Mm. And that was nice. So now. They have me every time if they're good enough. You know, they, I've said, oh, there's another one. I've just done one which people can see in pencil because they've said um, they might need a bit of clarity with one or two of the characters again. You know, but anyway, um, it's quite nice to be edited as well that people are uh, <laughs> checking on what you're doing and making sure it's clear. Mm. But so, it, I mean, it seems that this four page format is something you particularly like. Well, it is. I think it comes from these competitions like The Observer. And also, um, because I've got eight, two sets of um, short stories, Life, Death and Sandwiches was the first collection, because I'd gone along to my local bookshop in K4, where we had the launch for um, Self Made Hero, and they're just a lovely local independent mm. bookshop. And I said, I've done these individual comics, can you sell them? And they said, well, if you were to put it into a book, so I ran home, compiled four together, took mm. it along, and then it did keep selling, partly because I live around the corner and I could get all the families going and say, you've run out. So you know bookshops will have three of something or maybe mm. five if you're lucky. But if you keep going in there and saying, oh, they've gone again, 
can't do with every bookshop in the country, although I have got a very big um, extended family. So there mm. we go. <laughs> Cousin in every village. But um, Brilliant. Anyway, yeah, it's a, a hot tip if you do. Yeah, just go in there and if they've gone, the shop will be reminded. Nice. So is it, I mean, presumably they have a graphic novel section well, but is this the, the only time, oh, okay. what they're quite good at is um if there's a local person mm. they might give you a slot and i can't keep i mean that was a few years ago now so i've sort you've of got let a few them. <laughs> oh i do still sell them regularly mm. at um fairs because i'm no but i mean you've got a selection of different titles yes. you could just bring them all in yeah you know. <laughs> yes well, i could go back to them saying you've got the map because they've got the, that sales little box on there mm. and say if you want more of have anyway these back again but there's a time when something's selling regularly and then mm. let it um, someone else ever go, you know, and then maybe go back in saying, well, it's still, anyway, because I print them off my home computer, so it's, they look good. They're, um, yeah. But the, the thing I was going to say was, presumably, this is literally the only staple comic they sell in that shop. You know, so, you know, here today we have uh, an audience of comic creators, some of who are just starting out uh, in the business, that actually sometimes what it takes is making a connection with your local bookshop Absolutely. and saying, will you stock my wares? They, I, I bet you'll find a lot of them I mean, that's certainly the case within KT4. They can have a little sign saying local artist. And also, if you know people in the area, because I've lived in Highbury practically all my life, you know, you can email quite a lot of people. Like for the launch for, for this, we just, you know, loads of people want to come because they know you and, you know. So it mm. doesn't work in every, unless you go and live in all sorts of places, you know, it will work <laughs> in your local shop if you've got one as mm. well. Because um, the big chains might be different. Yeah, I don't know. If the, yeah. Yeah. Would do that and they stuff. might, they might yeah, yeah. We haven't tried it at the Angel, we could do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the to do list. Um, in terms of other artists, uh, that perhaps you've kind of been influenced by, or you've seen kind of uh, their work and you've kind of thought, oh, they're doing good things in the medium. Is there anyone that you think has well, particularly... Well, yeah, and I'm afraid I'm often compared to Paisley Simmons. Well, I didn't want to say it. Well, uh, um, uh, <laughs> I was when I uh, applied to do my MA and they said, but um, I didn't don't consciously try to be like her, but I did look at her all the time as a teenager. My parents mm. would get the Guardian and say, oh, it's another Paisley story this week. And it felt very much like the Islington world of, you know, so um, I did look at them, but also I loved um, Hergé really mm. um, more. I wrote a... Um, my dissertation on him um so got really obsessed with him but um it's funny for my generate my parents generation where what was illustration i was talking about this with paul earlier that um they loved posy but they would have said children's books once you're over seven you probably should be reading them without pictures in and this is only england we did we've mm, got to stop mm. doing this because pictures you know it's almost like you know we'd watch a film that's images isn't it and um i think it's what countries. handicaps the entire comics industry in this country well it does you know yeah. um canada japan france belgium hugely you know there's loads of countries where they say it's completely normal to have this other way of telling stories and we're you know we should get there you know it's um there shouldn't be a, a snobbery if that's what it is. Because mm. I think to draw them, it is a bit like doing film, I think. Mm. You know, that's how it feels to me. And I want to, my twin brother was an actor. And you, so you can sit there and be thinking of um, the, oh, and Alison Bechtel, I of course loved as well. Mm. And I think she takes photos of, um, while she's, but I just can't be bothered to do that. I just make it all up. I, I just sit there and think, well, I think the person would look a bit like this. And 
Anyway. Well, I mean, I was, I was reading an interview uh, yesterday with Rutu Modan, who did this fantastic graphic novel, Exit Wounds. And I hadn't realised until I read this interview that she gets actors to pose for the wow. characters yeah. in her comics and photographs them and actually gives them directions. And she then, I think, has directed a movie. <laughs> so well, maybe she's a frustrated filmmaker who then yeah, went no, into comics. Yeah, but a lot of people did that. Um, uh, uh, Rackham, what Arthur Rackham did, ah. have a um, little black book of... Um, people who he'd call in to pose and that's why they look so real hmm. and even Hergé would have models who in particular poses but I just think it's going to slow the whole process down you know to get someone in and then can hmm. you just pretend you're running along the street but and especially with Google Images now we can look at um, you know people and I did used to get those Dover books of um, illustration which have gone past that hmm. you know so they you've got lots of poses and stuff in there but now I do mostly it's a bit lazy really but just think well I think this is what the person would look like doing that, and um, that had to be okay. <laughs> but, um, Were you a comics reader in your formative years? Um, only the usual Beano and, you know, and not that, uh, slightly um, uh, not allowed. You know, my parents weren't that keen, so um, my cousins would get the Bunty or what all of that, and I'd read them there. Um, it, 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 my mum was a bit of a snob. She, we oh. weren't allowed to have the um, Enid Blyton she was seen as I mean it's a modern way of thinking that she was a bit of a rubbish writer in many ways you know so there was a um but the plots are great I mean anyway not that that she's about comics but um I think yeah there can be a snobbery so I had to find it elsewhere because mm. I was going to say I mean you're of a generation that when you were growing up there were loads of comics uh, aimed at female readers that then just disappeared in yes. the 80s and well, 90s all you know of, you know just 17 or all mm. of those but again um, my middle class mother wasn't particularly uh, and then I went to Camden School for Girls when I was 14 where there was such a sophistication with these 14 year old girls that I heard them saying to one girl oh you're not still reading 17 are you because they would have been reading Cosmopolitan so uh, you know <laughs> wow. sort of quickly go through um, teenage to yeah anyway so I never really didn't really read those no, mm. that much um, <laughs> um, but thinking of, you know, your kind of steps into comics uh, over the last decade, previous to that, presumably you'd been doing kind of single illustrations for picture books, for sheet music and so on. How did you feel the process of going from a single image to dividing up the page into a number of images that kind of tell a story? Well, definitely the the really strong desire to tell these stories like my mm. son saying you've kept going on about how because I literally had been I suppose saying oh mum's death was just so sad but funny mm. that I and he said just write a comic about it and Nicola Streeton says you you know in your style's good I'm sure you could do it mum literally if it wasn't for Lawrence mm. I don't think I would do it. and that one because the the guard the um, observer wrote a, a, an email a year later saying enter again I said, <laughs> Uh, to Lawrence, did you get that? Because he'd also entered. He's always doing his funny... Mm. And he said, no, I didn't get that. And so I thought, maybe that means they think it was almost like a, some kind of a shortlist. Then I, in, I did one about my first boyfriend. They always seem to... They don't always involve death, but I'm afraid they do, but uh, quite often. Because he'd um, it died of cancer later on. But mm. it was a very a very lovely... We'd stayed friends anyway. Um, sort of poignant love affair, really. And um, But uh, that one was in the final, and it was mm. in an exhibition... Uh, the you know the um, gosh comics or somewhere oh, nice. so I thought oh actually this is only the second one I've ever done of a proper story apart from you know yeah. for local authorities maybe I can do this to some extent um, mm. and then I just like doing them so 
um, that's where the collections uh, on the table are. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's great that you've now done, um, uh, you know, enough short comics that they have been kind of collected together in a few different volumes, so that not only at an event like today you can bring a selection, but actually a shop like Gosh uh, could carry. You know, yes, the, the well, Teresa Robertson oeuvre. I don't know if you because they did sell life, death and sandwiches. And then you get a really nice email from somebody saying, oh, let me know song? when there's any more. And you go, okay. And yeah, maybe it's three emails from different people. But it's enough to just keep you thinking, oh, yeah, I'll enjoy doing this. And I think people get something out of it. Mm. But they take a long time to do. You know, like I've got the two commissions a year now, as long as they're good enough, you know, for friends <clears> on the shelf. Mm. But that helps focus the mind that already once one is done, I'm beginning to think, so I've done the pencil stage for next September. It's mm. not till September, but six months goes around quite quickly mm. and you begin to think of what's the next one I could do. Um, and it's got to be autobiographical. So it's keeping me on my toes to do two a year, which yeah. sounds like nothing, but actually it, 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 you've got to think it, you know, rough it out, goes out, you know, I've got to have a beginning, middle and end. Storytelling is important that it's, mm. not, it's not just a random chain of events. It, you need people to feel something really I think mm. um, or laugh those two things yeah <laughs> make them laugh make them cry uh, uh, but without being but just if you're feeling it mm. then um, well I mean and it's interesting you know you, you've brought some of your uh, pencil drawings here today um, that actually even though you're a relative newcomer to comics you seem to be actually doing it in the same manner that many many people do that you do a rough you then do pencil work you then color the work is there also a script stage before yeah, that quite often you know? I do do that yeah not always I haven't with the latest one because I've um, because I've now written this um, the sort of whole of my sounds grandiose but autobiographic autobiography ah. as a, as graphic so I'm taking sections of it but they they don't work if you've got to do four pages of a particular incident mm. I have to redraw it all because this is for the friends on the shelf ones because it that particular incident may have taken eight pages in the, the book but it, wow. it, it these are all important things that I've gone through or felt had some meaning or have worked out mm. so that you yeah I have to redraw it but um, yeah. So eventually, when you finish the graphic novel, I'll act, there may be two versions of quite a lot of that content. Yes, because there'll know. be the four-page versions of an incident, and then, yeah. um, but uh, which may not even notice really. But that's the starting point. Is I have roughed out the whole of this life. Um, Do you find that a useful process, though, that actually condensing an incident into four pages means you can oh, yeah. crystallise how that idea works as a narrative, and then? The opportunity to expand on it for the graphic novel totally. is kind of luxurious. And when you all of you will have read Mouse, and mm. if you read the background of Mouse, he started with a, I think it was only a four-page short thing of, and then he worked on it for something like eleven or fourteen years. You know, these things mm. are of a whole book then. But um, he'd, yeah, if you can sum it up in four four pages, then um, whichever part of the life you're telling, that's. But sometimes you'll just take a tiny bit of a line, yeah. you know, or a funny little incident or something. And for the full graphic novel, how many pages do you think that is going to run to? Well, I've done it. I had, for the various competitions I've entered, I did the different bits of um, versions of telling. Well, I'll tell the nub of it was I was born as a twin. And then for 28 years, that was me and my twin brother, always going to the same school together and all the rest of it. And then I told the some boyfriend I was with we've got to make a baby I don't know why we're living on a boat and he's still married to somebody else and um, my twin came down to see me and put his hands down the little outfits and then he was killed on a motorbike and a month later 
I, mm. because he was delayed, the baby arrived. But, you know, that haunted me that for 28 years, I'd been a twin and then overnight um, had uh, motherhood started. But there were so many strange um, sort of premonitions that this would happen mm. as well, which I go into in the book. But then what makes it, I mean, actually an amazingly good ending is that um, the boy that was, the baby that was born at that point, Callum, mm. when he was the same age I was, 28, when, oops, when I had him, said, oh, um, Jess, his wife, she's pregnant, and then it's twins. Must so, be a genetic and, uh, thing, so many twins in the same family. Well, there are, yeah. I, when Adam died, my twin cousins, who were four months older than us, um, were just, you're our sister, never worry. You know, so I've had them mm. all alongside, all the way through, and we're, we've got our Robertson granny. We all like having kids, so we have kids, grandkids. We've done it all, Jack, get, get on it with that, and mm. that's what life, you know, what me. And actually, I was going to an event. There was a launch of something, and I had to say, I can't come because the twins have just been born. So I had to go and see. <laughs> anyway, they're a huge part of life. But it's, you know, started as one thing. And um, I just see patterns sometimes in yeah. life as well. Well, I think that's nice, actually, when you're structuring uh, a longer story, even if it is based on life, if there are those well, kind of patterns that you can it, kind of. Life can just be like that, and yeah. it surprises you. You can make it up sometimes, but um, if those things happen, it all helps to write them down. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, I mean, you know, you're the first official part of the graphic novel, as opposed to the previous bits that you've told as vignettes, uh, you've uh, brought out yes, as this black and white comic. That's and right. How many instalments do you think it's going to well, be? Well, I've got the next two there, because I had written a, um, a probably a 50, I think it was about 52 page version of this story of Adam and I, which I, the new twins hadn't been born then, so. I hadn't got to that because I didn't know that was going to happen. But then I've gone back over all of that and so I've divided it. I hadn't written before we were born, but that's a short book of nine pages called The Odds Were Stacked Against because mm. um, my parents were with two different people. Both were left at the same time. My mum was 40. She was a career girl. Suddenly she's with this guy. And so the odds really were stacked against us. I mean, everyone maybe thinks it's a miracle they got to be born, but I do think it was because we, you know, all the, yeah, my dad had was left with three children that mm. had to be all dealt with. And anyway, so that's the first section, just us getting born. And then I've divided the second half into privilege because that's about us being born into this very middle class um, mm. with a lovely nine bedroom vicarage of my grandparents to run around in. But then going to Nottingham, where my parents sent us to the local state school, which I'm really glad they did. But it was very, very different. My, they, you know, my dad had gone to Marlborough and Cambridge and knew nothing of this world. Mm. But it was character forming, and I'm still friends with the ones who didn't beat <laughs> me up. But it's all part of life. And and then we it went back to London, where suddenly everybody's from the same background. But I, I had no idea about the sophistication of these girls who are reading Cosmopolitan and having sex with boys from 12 and I thought whoa this is all like really funny and just wow. uh, you know if they'd be reading Jackie rather than Cosmo well you know. yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were, yeah they, by reading the Cosmo they were all I know it could, might have kept their innocence a bit longer anyway um, and then the third section I decided to call the the husband quest because I did set off on this very unfashionable thing at Camden where everyone was going to be in the media. We were asked what ambitions were and they were all going to be film directors. They all are, you know. And I thought, oh, all I want is to have some children. And I can't say that to Camden girls. It's not ambitious enough. But that is what... So then we go through all the unlikely suitors until 
this money doesn't look any good on paper because he was still married. <laughs> he did, wasn't earning any money. But that's the, I'm still with John, and we and he, you know, we had the kid when the families just so needed it, particularly my mum, you know. Mm. So um, again, life can turn out strange. So that's um, that's why that's called the husband quest. Nice. So it's in three sections, but I think the whole thing would be called twins because that's yeah what begins and ends it, and yeah. Cool. So, but it's a practical thing that if you try and do a whole book as a zine, it's just too thick. It won't go through. It won't, it's, <laughs> it won't go. So, it's as simple as that. Um, yeah. But also, I mean, you know, as as someone who does, uh, you know, come to festivals and fairs and and launches and whatnot, having a new product of a few pages is obviously a great thing to be able to do. But then, when you've done the whole of it, as say ten chapbooks or whatever, perhaps you could find a publisher that puts a spine, yeah, you know, that's and. What uh, you know, yeah. w- would be, yeah, yeah, that's what one could aim for, yeah. Cool, um, fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> Does anyone in the audience uh, have any questions for Teresa? Don't be shy. Yeah. Sorry. What was your process? Do you do pencil and then kind of ink? Yes. Or do you do it digitally? Um, well, I, have, I was about to say I haven't, I don't use Photoshop, but uh, for when I worked for the British Council for linking schools online, um, I, I, that I which was all going to be presented digitally. So it was for websites and stuff that I did colour in Photoshop for that. But otherwise, for all the rest of my work, I haven't done that for a while now. Um, I do the old fashioned way. I'm afraid they've got the, the, a book there. It's um, 300 gram watercolour paper. Um, so I pencil first and with an HB uh, and then black ink, you know, the, it, so it's um, got shellac in Indian ink. And a dip pen, so the nibs cost what three pounds or whatever, and um, and a pe- and a tissue at the ready because you've got to keep wiping it. But that just feels that's how I've worked that way. And I know, and when I was at the M- on the MA at Anglia Ruskin, um, it was quite healthy to say, oh, try lots of different techniques. But uh, I don't know if it's bad to then just come back to actually the way I. It feels like handwriting. It just feels natural, and um, and then watercolor. But I've found good quality ones there's a difference between if you get student quality they're cheaper but it's not as intense color <laughs> whereas if you go up to the artist quality which might mean five pounds per little thing so it's like Ooh, but the, it's far more intense color hmm. and I know everyone uses is it is it Procyon or no what's the there's a program where Procreate oh yeah and all of that's probably brilliant and I, <coughs> but maybe at my age I just think I, I can't learn a whole new world like that it's I think it's great when, and it, the effects look wonderful. I think if you know the tools you use and you're comfortable with them and you like I, the results. You yeah, know. I mean, I just like the fact that it's there in the paper and you can you know, hold it like this or that. And I feel a bit more intense with um, a computer and the light from it. Um, mm. So it's a personal choice, yeah. Mm. Uh, any other questions? Yeah. Just looking at the drawings on the screen, I want to know if you've ever drawn a ghost story. I don't know why I want to know. Ah. There's something about the way you... They're all ghosts in a way. Cause, right. <laughs> well, actually, a section of in there after my brother died, my parents had found a story on their shelf which gave them great comfort. Um, Is it in one of these? It's a bit of a dark one, my mum. No, I don't know. If, um, well, I could hold it up from one of these books. But it was The Monkey's Paw. Which they took great cut. So I've drawn that about six pages of it, and I thought, Mum, this is. But she was quite. She was a, 
um, obsessed with death all the way through. She'd take us for walks around graveyards. That's why it's all odd that uh, I put that in. That And she'd sing us really dark. Well, her dad, I'm afraid, taken his life when she was only 13. So I think she was a bit obsessed with um, death. But the monkey's paw is that you would wish that your son would come back. You probably all know the story. So I've drawn it because they drew comfort from it. But you, you can't, they can't come back. But I thought it's, um, so that's a ghost story. Uh, so yeah, I have, that's the only one. And it's a story within a story. Uh, do you like ghost stories then? I'm not a big fan. But you can tell that I'm about the... the way you draw people and the way they talk. Right. It's a bit like when people tell ghost stories, and I'm not sure why right. I feel that looking at your pictures. I like that. Wow. Um, yeah. There you go. <laughs> you, you, I'll show you. I'll find it for you. But you. then maybe it's something to do with the Gothic. You know, yes. returning to the topic of death in a number yeah. of um, your stories gives it that kind of genre feel, even if you're not actually tackling supernatural stories. Yeah. 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 It obviously, is something a bit um, having a mum like I had, and because. Well, that the one you've got up there was the vigil that we spent next to my dad when my mum chose the nine days while we were sitting next to him, which it, I call it the perfect death because it really was. He was just lying there breathing until he went white and he'd gone and it was amazing, as peaceful as you could ask. But during it, she was saying about all the tragedies she'd gone through, her dad, you know, killing himself and then her mum dying in front of her of, um, when she she had a feeling she ought to go and visit her in hospital and then my brother and then getting support it was almost as if after she'd just finished all those we both looked at each other he's gone and she said literally this but this 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 is this is perfect you know all those were tragedies this isn't i mean you get to 86 and you're in a bed and peaceful yeah so she, i sort of got her point but i still thought i'm still that's still my dad who's just died mm. it's you know <laughs> but she's very practical you know, <laughs> so, and also hearing, I thought he's probably hearing all this. It's the last thing to go, isn't it? Hearing, I hope he doesn't mind hearing all. But I thought, well, maybe he knows he's going off to join these people. I'll think about more ghost stories, maybe then. Maybe this is a new, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. I'm, I, it's a different sort of subject, maybe, but um, I was struck when looking at the, um, the, the Kings and Queens uh, bit about. Mm. Uh, of all the all the thousands of little anecdotes that you could say about any one of those people, how would you pick just one? And now I'm wondering whether that actually plays into how you deal with the autobiographical stuff as well. Like how do you decide? How well, you have to think quite a lot. I mean, I was helped with a framework by Leo Schultz, this writer whose idea it was with Emma, who's um, and Paul there is the publicist for Self Made Hero. Um, so. You know, that I was given, a, he didn't really know how it would all work, given a list of possible um, interesting things about these people. But actually, look at, to see what they looked like, I'd be looking through um, reference books, particularly the, from the National Gallery, because they've got most of these characters in there, you know, beautiful paintings of them. And then you'd find a few salient facts. And then I'd say to Leo, we've got to have in that, you know, he was you know stabbed in, the, or uh, had shot by an arrow in the New Forest or whatever, or... Um, so it was really about, yeah, I mean, boiling down. It was, a, it was a collaborative process, that, which I'm not used to doing. You know, it was really nice, though, to actually to have. It t took me back to the days of working for the British Council, where it's a very tight brief. You've got to show cultural differences um, between, you know, these places and stuff like that. So, yeah, I have you. This is doing my own graphic stories is sort of liberating in a way because it's just me thinking of them. 
but um, there's something about working to a brief which is quite satisfying and it pushes you further. The front cover of that, where I was pushed with, oh, it could be like this or that, that, that. Come on. And he was, Leo was standing over my shoulder at the end <laughs> to say, oh, turn the, make the lion and the unicorn more playful because you'll see how I've drawn it on the original. I've brought them along. Um, so sometimes somebody else involved will um, push it further than you might have just done on your own as well so but concentration yeah I think with drawing all these things you've got to certainly with any story you've really got to think what am I trying to say and how am I going to do it and it takes a long time what it can do um yeah would you thought of like write the whole script first and then well uh, when I did the dying one or certainly in the early days I would do that and it does still help but, um, and uh, I think a good thing is start uh, you can um, say if I think there's roughly going to be nine um, squares per page maybe and then I want it to have a build up something at the beginning and then nearly always think what your ending is going to be as well because that's really important. It's got to have a shape to it. Something's got to happen. I mean, there's the classic thing that three quarters of the way through any story, maybe all's lost or and then some kind of resolution. I mean, this is just a feel, you know, any film you see, the family tease me that I can say, ah, uh, you know, right now that guy's going to, and they go, oh, and then, because you've got to have a feel of, you know, mm. how are people going to, if it's just too random, maybe they're not going to be interested. But um, so the end, so with the present story, I had to think it's, it's writing about me landing at Camden School for Girls like an alien from the north. I had a different accent and everything because I'd been in Nottingham for nine years. So I had no idea about anything they were talking about, these sophisticated girls. But just listing those things isn't going to work. So I had to have an ending where I'll give you the surprise because... I, I, at a reunion, I um, shocked them all. They're all in all these wonderful alternative scenarios. And I said, when I go to church, which is, um, they, they were so deeply shocked by that because it's so square that that was shocked them more than anything. And I quite liked that. But, um, so I'm very naughty. Anyway, so you have to think, um, you know, don't just list things, say, you know, it, it, I suppose in any story, I feel you've got to make a shape. Mm. to it and that must also i guess differ from project to project if you're doing a four-page story you kind of know the rhythm of four pages yes. if you're doing a 16-page story you know the rhythm yeah. of that working out perhaps even things like page turns well even i think at the end of every page you've got to try yeah. and make it that if there's something then that's going to flip that or just try and bear in mind that you want the person if possible all good writing uh, novels and everything the writer will be trying to do that to get you to turn the next page mm -hmm. but um oh and i have to mention because we're in brighton that there's a story in one of those where a friend of my dad's when i was about 21 and said i really do photo i want you to pose for a photo and i said yeah i know what kind of work you do what kind of magazines this or, or and uh he said you just got to stand in front of a famous building but you will have to just Basically, you'll have to flash in front of a famous building. I said, I'm not doing that. But my flatmates all said, I'll do it. How much? And it was going to be 70 quid. And I had an overdraft for that at the time. But the building I did was Brighton Pavilion. So um, so I thought, I have to tell you that. Right? But people, I might hide, you know, it, you might have to buy it if you want to see it. It's in one of those. <laughs> but you do, I have got the flat. They had great fun. You do actually open the flat and see the picture back from... And I, I go to church, but I, I've told the vicar, and he's, he's fine with <laughs> Father, I've sinned, and we all do things when we're younger that maybe we shouldn't have, but hey, you've also got to... 
the, say, um, yeah. And the pavilions in here as well. You hear yes, I've yeah, obviously got a bit board. of a thing about the pavilion. <laughs> yeah, well done. You really are good at looking at what people have done. Yes, in the Saxe-Coburg Gothers, because one of the mad, um, uh, not, I was going to say, with George's, yeah. yeah. The sequel know. to the mad one. Yeah, 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 it was the third. I should know them all. In the, the George the Fourth built it, didn't he? Mm. I should know from there. They can all see. Um, but again, I mean, that kind of shows even when you're doing this historical project, as with your own autobiographical stories, thinking of with which little kind of interesting historical factoids will work well in the context of this story. You're bringing your interests into the uh, to the history as well. Oh well, if I'm gonna do a drawing of George the Fourth, I'll also I'll include the Brighton in Pavilion. <laughs> Maybe not myself flashing yeah, in front yeah, of I it, but uh, it's a bit small that, to draw that in there. Yeah, no, everything that you ever do in your life, it's, it's stored in some bit of your brain, isn't it? So um, it's all there to. And um, by the time you get to sixty-three, there's a lot of years that have. Um, yeah. Anyway, you've gone through. So. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. So. Do you do your own lettering? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I have a different, sometimes I use a different dip pen for that. Um, but I find on smooth, say I've got 100 gram photocopy paper, it's, it doesn't take it, this particular dip pen very well. There's something about that 300 gram where I think the ink soaks into the paper. And um, uh, But I like doing that, yeah. You letter with a dip pen? I do, because I like the, the, it goes thick and thin. You know, if you can push a little bit more and you get a bit more texture on the the line. Um, so I, it's the same pen that um, I used to sometimes swap to a slightly more um, wide nib, a dip, still a dip pen. But so I, there's a relationship between the lines you make. Oh, yes, the yes, the uh, of the writing works, as well. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. But it does mean if they were are going to ever translate that it's a bit more but I'm the British here. Council managed that I used to have to um, I'd be given this they'd remove the text and I'd have to sometimes hand write in different languages um, do you do it on a different layer then not on the same well no I did it all on the same layer but you can e easily wipe off in Photoshop just clean it off and then but then draw I've got a light box at home I used to have a massive thing with light bulbs in it and then found oh you know modern technology there's now light boxes that are that thin probably with an a, you know led in there and that i use all the time for um well um, and when i'm doing these house paintings which is probably my bread and butter every month particularly i've done 360 of them i get paid to paint people either in front of their home or um, buildings or a lot for I've got three at the moment of head teachers leaving particular schools and so I've had to do one for William Tyndale one for and then they hear about it or something so I've got another one dropped in my inbox there another head so I'm saying we're near the end of term maybe you're going to have to have A4 of, um, so, uh, to get it done by they've only got a month anyway but that's um, I, why am I saying about that it's just because um, that's what you make the well it's from, another it, yeah, yeah that pays yeah, so you go where the money goes, you know, people, um, that's something that... Mm. And it's interesting, I mean, you know, all of these different kinds of work are still recognisably you. There is I a kind they of... they are, yeah. But, but you have to adapt your style slightly to each project. So with the drawing of the various kings and queens, it's more, in inverted commas, uh, cartoony in the sense that they've just got dot eyes, like stereotypical cartoons, because 
you're having to fit so much information well, into small. such a small yeah, box, you don't have the room to do it. But when you've got a bigger panel to actually draw yes, someone more I realistically, could, you can put in the pupils use, and the irises. Yeah, and, although often I'm just using a dot. And on the MA, Martin Salisbury would challenge that saying, oh, you know, they aren't just dots. And I think, no, they're not. But in a way, again, you, you just go with what's comfortable. But yeah, you can show a bit more expression if you can also make the eyes, if they're smiling, they're going to be a bit more um, of a little line or, hmm. um, yeah. And certainly bigger detail, or if you want to show somebody surprised, it's helpful to have a line around the eyes to show the surprise. But even with these portraits, I mean, you're getting a lot of kind of personality and expression, you know, even with just single dots. And well, I think something I, that really helped as I grew up, my, so my parents, and that comes in that first nine page, met because they were both designers in the theatre. So my mum was doing the costumes at Bristol Old Vic, my dad was the set designer, and that's the sets and costumes put together is I'm putting people and mum did the most beautiful we still got a folder of this she's in the V&A and everything mm. of her costume designs of it um, not usually modern stuff so much um, but you know they did opera as well so they did their most famous thing was Rigoletto at the E&O um, so uh, we've still got what isn't in museums is um, in a big folder in my living room but she was you know very good at capturing at these mm. characters um, so I think growing up with that, even if it's mm. either genetic or that you're just seeing people um, do this, it means it's not diff not impossible thing to do, you know. Mm. And hers, just looking at these, kind of, there's lots of restoration plays with, if, mm. um, she did Lock Up Your Daughters with these buxom girls with beer carts and everything. So I've got all these around the house as well. Anyway, wow. <laughs> Sorry, any, any other questions? questions? Um, Michi. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just back to process. Um, I'm just curious, when you've done a page like this with your dip pen and watercolour, is that actually how you finished it? Have you not spent an hour on the computer? No, well, you can. All the mistakes like I have to do every single time I do a page. Um, do, do, the, the actual artwork, you can see, you, could, you, you can just touch it there, that you can look at that. Yeah. Um, is, no, there would be, obviously the editors had to look and change things and you had your their guy Nick at the 11th hour looking through. So then I might have to go in and wipe off something and rewrite and scan in the word that was mm. going to be different or... Um, but I, mean, I just mean like the lettering, the little mistakes that just happen. You don't have those, do you? Um, well, I'm, tip X or, you know, or scrub or um, a knife that right. is a rounded edge so I can scratch off. Um, and I do do that um, with that thick paper. You can mm -hmm. scratch off, and if it's white, it's slightly harder. If there's, if you've already coloured it, mm -hmm. then you will see that scratch a bit. But then you can crayon over the top of that, uh, yeah, and it doesn't show then. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, do you work in computer more? Would you say or no, on no, no. screen? No, no, no. I have the same process. Right. Pen and watercolour. Yeah, but I never make a page that's any good, you know, oh. just as it is. It always has to be. Well, it, um, Quentin Blake, you know, in exhibitions of his, you can see because it was always to be reproduced. You can see bits of white paper mm -hmm. he stuck it on. It's fine, yeah. you know. It depends what it's for, and if it's and he, these were being sold at, or certainly shown in an exhibition. I thought well, he didn't mind that he's because mm. the camera wouldn't have seen that. They could um, erase that. I think it's nice to be able to see someone's working. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've got various things there that you can see, but because um, I brought a book as well of the um, 
vignettes for a music publisher. That was a funny thing I happened to get. About 36 books, I think they did. If, um, that was another nice little learner from um, an American music publisher. You know, the vignettes when kids will learn to play the piano mm. and all these tiger moms in America want the next books and the next books. So they just say to me, can you do... Or, and I'm in England and they're, they're in America, but they, I think a lot of the songs have an English root or something. I don't know. Mm. Anyway, um, yeah, it was... Is that a question nice. coming on the screen? Yes, let's have a look uh, <laughs> uh, if I can work out which bit to, to press on. Corin might have a question. Uh, I was interested because I, I was going to ask you about the, you know, kind of full page illustrations you do of the houses and so on because they are very, very beautiful. And it's interesting that you actually, when you're writing your stories, you know, you can't quite be bothered to do um, backgrounds or anything or kind of look at too much reference material and yet actually you're a very very good and accurate illustrator and I was just wondering if when you're I don't I can't recall I mean I've, I've been you know lucky enough to kind of read your latest manuscript and it's really terrific and you're a great storyteller and I'm just thinking well, I don't see any splash pages there and I was kind of wondering mm. if you could use sort of you know kind of think more in chapters or separate the material with kind of yeah. a full page illustration of a you know the house you're talking about at the yeah. time who's in, you know so you get a sense of time and decades no that's a really book. nice idea actually because i yeah. um i sort of did it with the front covers but it, it could happen yeah. more and i had thought um certainly certain scenes you know are it would point. give it more space it would to to have mm -hmm. that no it's funny that at the i think with the house paintings there's something meditative about particularly bricks i worked out that um if i turned it on its side and scored with a white pencil and then went the other way and get the flemish bond which is the small brick with the big ones either side um and then go over with a different crayon that shows brick and it's a bit meticulous so I suppose when I'm wanting to tell a story I, I kind of just want to get on with doing that but I would that should combine the two yeah, yeah. <laughs> no that's a really good I mean the reader needs sort of, yes I mean as well as pace and the page mm. it's also having kind of you know sort of quiet sections in a book or something yes where it is more contemplative or whatever yeah um, and very so it's not just kind of bracing ahead with the next episode yeah. No, that's a really good point. It's I, I probably do have a bit too much people sitting around having lunch and they're uh, talking to each other and it, that yeah. Um, no, thank you. That's a good. That's a very good um, tip actually. Yeah. Mm. Although um, if you do collect all of these individual comics that make up your autobiography, you could keep those covers as chapter kind of breaks. Well, yes, you know. um, maybe that because yes, they wouldn't be a cover anymore on the mm. new um, one. But I've only yeah. got that twice with the yeah the beginning of the. But more in there, no, because I like doing yeah big scenes as well, um, and working out at what point should the pace be slowed down a bit, um, yeah. Lovely, mm. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions, Simon? Oh. You killed Princess Diana, <laughs> Queen. Oh. I might have misunderstood a little bit because I've been drinking while you've been talking. <laughs> uh, have you got someone in mind for the, the tap trick? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, 
the present royals, oh, you know, I know, I, I mean, let's let Charles do whatever he's doing. The other, some of them are bonkers, aren't they? But um, <laughs> not killing him. No, I'm too nice for that. But uh, <laughs> He wants a horror story from yeah, you, clearly. Yeah, he does, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a, an alternative universe. Well, your stories seem to revolve around death cycle, They do. So. I know, not that I'm willing that on anybody, though. They have to have already happened. Um, um, maybe, I don't know. You're yeah. after, after the event. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. Any other questions? No? Teresa okay. Robertson, thank you very much. Thank you very much. For more info about Teresa Robertson's work, please go to her website, teresa-robertson.co.uk. That's T-E-R-E-S-A dash r-o-b-e-r-t-s-o-n dot co dot uk where you can get hold of her various autobiographical comics such as life death and sandwiches brexit betrayal booze and babies and the odds were stacked against the historical pamphlet about the history of the british royalty the comicalized british monarchy from alfred the great to charles the third written by Leo Schultz and published by Self-Made Hero, is available now from all good bookshops. As mentioned in the interview, Teresa was sent on her path of making comics in recent years by entering the first graphic novel competition, which runs every few years and leads to comic creators having their first graphic novel published. This year's competition is running now, with the deadline being midnight on Thursday the 14th of September. The first graphic novel award is a partnership between the Cartoon Museum, publisher Self-Made Hero, and independent graphic novel editor Corin Perlman, and as well as an entry fee of £10 or £5 for concessions. The judges would like you to email 15 to 30 pages of a graphic novel in progress, a one-page description or synopsis of this work, a completed entry form and monitoring form, and you can find info about all of this at firstgraphicnovel.co.uk. My Q&A with Teresa was recorded at Cartoon County, a monthly discussion group where a visiting cartoonist comes and talks to an audience of their peers and fans at the Walrus Pub in the Lanes in Brighton. For more info about Cartoon County, please go to www.cartooncounty.com. In the second half of the show, I'm talking to historian Alice Loxton, about her book, Uproar, Satire, Scandal and Printmakers in Georgian London, which looks at the lives of the classic 18th century satirists Thomas Rowlandson, Isaac Cruikshank and James Gilray. My interview with Alice was recorded at the Cartoon Museum, where examples of all of these satirists' work can be found on the walls of the museum, alongside examples of cartoons by more contemporary satirists making fun of the government of the day. My interview with Alice preceded a talk that she gave later that evening at the Cartoon Museum about the book, which you'll be able to hear in a later episode of Panel Borders, and we discussed her background as a popular historian, her interest in comics, and the kind of escapades that the satirists got up to, which you'll find in the pages of the book. I was having a look at your YouTube channel and the various topics that you've covered in the past are kind of things like Victorian surgery, interesting kind of facts about places that people know and so on. Uh, but this book is kind of very much an intense and in-depth look 
at a birth of kind of 19th century caricature. How did that come about <laughs> as the topic for such kind of a long form work? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, really it came about because I was studying and I was studying um, you know, history at university. I was doing the Georgian age and you know, I was really drawn to these, these images and, and these prints. And I was really struck when I was writing these, um, you know, writing about it that considering the impact and the influence of people like Gilray, uh, as well as the kind of magnificent images that they created, you know, such exciting, vivid works. I was just really struck by the fact that I didn't really know who these people were, even though I'd been studying history for four years, mm. um, and that they weren't better known in general. And it really kind of was a light bulb moment where I thought it'd be a really good book to write in a kind of really accessible way. You know, I, I was studying all of kind of Tim Clayton's work and, and you know, there's some brilliant academic work out there. Uh, and, and, you know, not even academic, but I just realised that, you know, a real, a real beginner's guide would be, <laughs> would be something that, that might do quite well and, and be quite a good thing to contribute to the book world. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's really, it's really drawn from that. Because I guess, you know, it touches on uh, the major historical events of the time, it touches on politics of the time, it touches on art of the time. Yeah. So by choosing these caricaturists, it kind of also gives you a lens at everything else that was going on, or at least things that they might want to draw about. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's, um, we so often think about the Georgian age in through, well, I suppose throughout all of history, you always think about that period through the kind of images of the time. And mm. so often, you know, for the Georgian age, we often think about the paintings that exist, which are beautiful and spectacular, um, you know, paintings like by the likes of Reynolds, or we probably think of, um, you know, things like Pride and Prejudice and Colin Firth coming out of the lake, that sort of thing. Um, but I, I, you know, what, what these prints do is they just paint an, a completely different, you know, much more vivid, much more lively, much more funny and silly and weird and wacky mm. kind of insight into, into that world. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it's a brilliant lens to look at all of the things that were going on in that time because they were depicting everything and everyone in society. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great, a great lens. And of course, you know, all the time these images, the likes of Gilray are used in educational textbooks to try and bring it to life, you know. Um, so they are used a lot uh, for, for that very purpose, I think. Mm. And I suppose as well, in terms of kind of like respectable academia, um, yeah. a look at what's going on in pop culture is something that people have actually started to look at over the last 20, 30 years. Because if you look at, you know, these uh, the prints by these artists were very much kind of like the pop culture of their time. And then if you do kind of like similar analysis of you know comics or, or video games or whatever in the 20th century you can see that these kind of popular forms perhaps perhaps react more quickly to what's going on at the times of the day and so I guess are very valuable you know in, in those terms. Oh definitely I mean that's what's so exciting about these prints is that they they are reacting within hours mm. to events coming through or rumours you know you can really trace say there's a report coming over from France, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but there are, you know, the newspapers are reporting certain things about what's going on during the September massacres, and then you can track exactly, because all the prints have dates on, mm. um, you know, you can exactly track when, you know, in the, next out, in the next hours, you know, they would have been working on this print, and you can see that they would have been reacting to certain events. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, you know, there are some, there are some events that happen, some scandals, mm. and there are so many prints that go out just about that one scandal, mm. you know, over, say, four weeks' time, you know. And so it's really reactive, and it's just like the way that newspapers work today, mm. I think, or, you know, Twitter, that kind of thing, that kind of speed of reaction. Um, you know, newspapers, within a day, they'll have had a big take on something, big reaction to the event the day before. So... I suppose you don't really get that in other art, you know, paintings. Um, and, but then, of course, for many people wouldn't, you know, for many years, in some ways, these artists, I consider them artists, but they mm. often haven't been considered artists. They've been considered as more of a kind of news, um, a news kind of operation. But I guess that's something which I'm trying to do is try and make people see them as artists because mm. otherwise you kind of yeah, see yeah. them as a trade, a tradesman kind of um, which is a slightly derogatory thing. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, anyway, that's... A well, I mean, I, I guess that's what I was kind of getting at, that by looking at sort of the examples of pop culture, yeah. it tells it just as much about a time as the high art does, yeah. if not more so. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I always think about a painting of, say, George IV, or the future George IV, mm. um, who we know was this horrifically kind of like lazy, gluttonous, indulgent... <laughs> Um, like the way that historians talk about it, him is just like <laughs> they do not hold back in how bad he was as a person even the times obituary I think it was like two days after he died okay so a period of, of mourning you know mm. really and the times even you know you'd have thought be pretty kind of respectable and respectful they are saying if this man had a friend in the world we do not know of him you know so wow. he was pretty mad <laughs> he was pretty mad as a guy but you know the paintings of him is how we often perceive him mm. and he is perceived he is you know, he's got perfect skin and he's this kind of heroic figure in a classical pose. Um, and yeah, you know, he's very heroic, but, he, but that is a complete fiction. Mm. You know, it's airbrushed, it's got Instagram filters on, if you like. Whereas I think what Gilray would do, you know, and then you compare the image, the, the great art, you know, the great painting of George IV, and you compare it with how Gilray will depict George IV, which is a voluptuary under the horrors of digestion. And it does not hold back on, you know, him eating, him gambling, all of his illnesses, there's overflowing chamber pots, there's, um, you know, there's, there's the Carlton House building works in the background, and it's, you know, this like sinkhole of public money. And that is a much more accurate portrait of this man. Um, so I think, yeah, you know, it's a much, it's much more useful and it's it kind of um, to, to look at Gilray, at, you know, if you really want to understand what the people were actually like, and I think Gilray is really useful. And the other thing is that, of course, we know that people would stand outside these print shops looking at these prints really mm. laughing. Mm. It was described as veritable madness when a new print appeared. And that would only, people would have only found it funny if it was close to life and these depictions were accurate you know if, if these depictions say of William Pitt if they actually looked like William Pitt then that that it would only be funny if it's kind mm. of if it's accurately done so um, I think we can we can deduce that these would have you know they would have had lots of similarities to how people really were you know or you know you can kind of gain a sense of people the presence of these people just by looking at these prints um, mm. so yeah I mean incredibly useful and as I say you know they're always used in textbooks, universe, you know, any educational source about the age, because they say so much more than, than the great paintings of the time. Mm. And you mentioned uh, the print shops. Do you get the impression, and you know, in the book you quite often use kind of modern comparisons you know, <laughs> to back then, 
uh, in a way it was a bit like uh, the, the Twitter or the Instagram of its time that people would go down to a place where a number of print shops were and find out what the latest kind of caricatures and political cartoons were. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, it's really, obviously there's kind of a lot of modern comparisons you could sure. make and it's hard to know exactly what, what it would be. Um, I mean, Twitter, obviously, it's, it's kind of similar memes, modern memes, you know, the idea that there's this image that's just got an accompanying bit of text that is a funny image. You know, that, that is essentially what a meme is, and that kind of is what these prints are. Um, but I think, you know, and when, when you think about memes and the way that they have like in-jokes and in-jokes, and then there's mm. a joke about a meme that's, you know, it's like it gets so, it gets so complicated, and that's kind of what these prints were like, I think. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, the, so in the print shops, they were put up, you could go into the print shops and you could buy these prints and they were expensive luxury items so the wealthy would go in and buy them but they were also displayed on the print in the windows so each of the panes mm. would have a different print in and this was so brilliant because it meant that anybody in London could go and look at the prints so you know you didn't have to have any money you didn't need to you know you yeah, could just go free and have a look. it's a free public exhibition and so that is why it's kind of similar to um, you know, some more modern kinds of, you know, Twitter and that kind of thing. Um, and, and because they were replaced, you know, daily, so they were really reactive mm. to, to the latest rumours and the latest gossip and that sort of thing. And what sort of sense do you have of the kind of demographics of people who kind of enjoyed these prints? Because I was, I was reading your book and there's an example you show where one of the artists has done a cartoon that's a copy of a piece of fine art. So that assumes a certain kind of literacy of visual culture. So do you find that some of their prints were aimed at upper class readers, some were aimed at middle class, and they just kind of varied depending on what the joke was that they wanted to tell? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think there are so, there are so many prints that exist that they created, so it's quite hard to give a broad, broad answer for that. Mm. But, um, you know, there are a range, and some of them are definitely much kind of cruder or simpler. And some of them have a lot more, you know, have a lot more kind of jokes in them. But I think all of them, in, in many ways, are are created, or many of them are created in a way that's immediately funny. Mm. So if you can't even read, it's funny. It's got like some slapstick humour. You can see the prime minister falling over or something like that, you know. And that is immediately funny to anyone who looks at it. And then you know, it, it's got all this, this, these layers and layers of the joke. So the clues. Once you read the title, once you read the captions, once you look a bit closer at the characters, you suddenly can piece together all these other things. And for some people, you know, they'll have kind of they'll stop at one or two little comments. But for other people, perhaps people who are more educated, um, have studied the classics, have studied Shakespeare, they would, you know, they would then they would also clock lots of other references, and I think they would piece together a much more complex and a much richer image and a much kind of more intellectually funny joke, I suppose. Mm. And I think there's also a sense that you, Gilray perhaps, who was an educated guy himself, would have gone and um, would have, expect, you know, kind of wanted people maybe to kind of have to go and look up that little reference and, mm. and, and, and then work it out as a kind of puzzle. But um, yeah, I mean, that's what, makes, that, that's what makes them such fun because you know, when you're looking at them yourself today, you know, go and look on the British Museum website and you can see all of these prints and you can, you know, obviously we're not familiar with the, the characters really, but, mm. but when, when you do piece them all together and you realise, oh, that's the, that's the joke, he's been depicted as this classical figure because he had the affair with this person and then this and this, you know, and it's this massive web that you can work out. So they're great fun even today mm. to kind of 
piece it all together, I think. Yeah, and I guess that's what I was kind of suggesting with the idea of pop culture, that there are obviously reoccurring characters in yeah, a lot yeah. of these drawings who would otherwise be lost to history. They're not people who have history books written about them because they've yeah. just had an affair with, <laughs> with whoever or been caught drunk on the street. I know, yeah. But actually it shows that at the time they were someone who, were, who was kind of like worthy of discussion and, and, yeah. and satire and caricature. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's the same as modern kind of drama and mm. um, scandal. You know, mm. there's some... You know, there's always like one MP that comes has has a year where he's like really in the limelight because <laughs> of like one really specific scandal, um, and then he probably never was ever covered in the papers again. Um, but you know, it was the same with those those prints. And um, but you know, sometimes the jokes were so they were such in jokes and they were mm. so kind of like specific to that moment that even with ten or twenty years, people couldn't really work out what what you know they they found it quite confusing. So they're quite of their time, I think. Mm. Um, you mentioned fine art, and one of the things that I hadn't realised until I started reading your book was uh, that Gilray and Rowlandson went to the Royal Academy. You somehow think oh, yeah. that these caricaturists must have, because there obviously wasn't a cartoon school yeah. back then, been somehow kind of like more self-taught, but the fact that they had this fine art background I think is fascinating, that they went through that whole process yeah. of studying the, the plaster casts and going to life drawing. And even in those life drawing sessions, you note how actually they were as interested uh, in drawing kind of like their fellow students and, yeah. and satirising them as actually drawing the model, which I think is a real kind of interesting insight yeah. into their personality. No, definitely. I know, I mean, I think that's... It's, it's really strange they aren't really referred to as artists or they aren't in... If you look at history of art books, mm. they are not really included. They're not generally included. They're always a kind of side note, if, if anything. They're kind of put aside as if they're kind of trades people who work in shops. But Gilray and Rowlandson were the product of the Royal Academy schools, mm. the product of something that Joshua Reynolds created. And they are, you know, what Re Reynolds, uh, Gilray's great prints are, are a product of the Royal Academy. Mm. Um, so I think it's, it's strange to kind of push them aside. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, it's really important to know that because it explains why at this point in time, suddenly these prints became really good. It's because these people are really well educated who understood how to really, you know, accurately depict these beautiful images. You know, they could, they understood how to create an exact likeness of people. Mm. They understood how to, they really understood the etching and the engraving processes. They understood all the in-jokes of the art world. Um, and but they did, they, you know, instead of becoming another Joshua Reynolds or a portrait painter, they applied this high art skill to what is considered low art, and that created this in-between mm. kind of new genre, I think. That's how I sort of see it, and that's why at that moment they, they, they suddenly get really good. And I think um, the reason why, it's, we're not really sure, but I think, you know, they, we know that Gilray has these trade cards called, and it says Gilray Portrait Painter, and he's really trying to become mm. a portrait painter. So he sets out with the ambitions to be a great artist in the traditional sense. Um, and for whatever reason, it doesn't work. It's probably as, you know, it's the same today. People try and make it in the music world and it's, you know, they never get their big break. They never meet the agent, whatever. And so then mm. they just, they go for something else. But 
lucky for us that it didn't work I think <laughs> well I mean I, I guess it's as much just boiling down to what they can make a living doing right yeah you know exactly. if they realize that by doing cartoons and caricatures and selling prints of them they're going to make more money than doing portraiture then actually once you realize you're good at something and you've got an audience you keep doing it yeah you know, exactly. as simple as that. no it's so I mean today you know I've I've spent, you know, I'm my comparison perhaps like I do a lot of things on social media mm. um, and I make a lot of very short videos for TikTok and Instagram. Um, but I've also written in the past newspaper articles. But actually, it's the videos on TikTok that people, you know, are much more mm. lucrative. And, and I used to think, you know, that it, like doing all the newspaper stuff would be really, really good. And that's, you know, that's the thing that people want. But actually, uh, you know, you suddenly sort of realise that there's this new form that is much more palatable to people. So maybe perhaps there's some sort of similarity there, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and at the risk of kind of taking you out of your comfort zone, because okay. obviously, you know, you're, you're uh, a historian, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, it's uh, as much about the events and, and the characters and what happened. But um, I'm kind of curious about the history of the development of comics going mm. from single kind of caricature images through to kind of more narrative based yeah. things and certainly in their work you see um, a lot of word balloons yeah and i have you noticed that you know looking at the time that this was actually where part of the language of comics came from that by adding word balloons they were starting to invent the language of the modern cartoon yeah i mean i don't know what the i don't know what modern you know where that 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 like the in between what the in between bit mm. is but certainly there are aspects of prints by the likes of Gilray which are very similar to modern cartoons and I think you know some, one of the things that they really made massive use of were these speech bubbles so you know that's almost in all of the prints they have these speech bubbles and that was something that was that was relatively new or hadn't really been expressed in that way before. The other thing that they do is they divide you know sometimes they'll divide the page up into eight mm. and then show a progression there's one brilliant one of Napoleon's life that they show the progression of his life um, you know, telling this story, and that is some that is the way that you know Beano comics are made mm. today. Um, you know, dividing the page up in that way. So I think they, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many similarities, and I'm not mm. sure how quite what the the route is to get it to modern like modern comics, but um, I'm sure you know somewhere along the way yeah, it yeah, must yeah. influence someone. Well, I wonder also. I mean, it's you know thinking of them being visually literate and looking at what was being. Um, Kind of displayed in the Royal Academy and other kind of high art institutions at the time, you see the ancestors of word balloons in ecclesiastical paintings right, yeah. with like you know lettering on scrolls floating above the sky in between yeah. you know cherubs and whatever yeah. and occasionally you see kind of references to that in their works. So I wonder if you know th yeah. they've spotted it in high art and think oh that works I'll, I'll put it in the cartoons. Yeah I mean I'm sure I'm sure that they could have done it. It's there's so much of their work is influenced by high art, mm. um, if you like, you know, traditional painting and, you know, the, 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 the kind of education they had at the Royal Academy schools would have been looking at all of the Renaissance artists, mm. all of the kind of ancient classical sculptures and, and, and how they created figures. So there's a lot of kind of in-jokes about, you know, in, in the way that they depict characters, it's, it's, it's um, you know, there's a lot of in-jokes about other art that's created by artists at the time, you know, making spoofs of Reynolds' as paintings, um, or just making spoofs of, um, you know, cla tr class like classic tropes in, you know, traditional kind of fields of Western art. So, um, you know, there are some some ways that you know certain characters in art are often depicted, and mm. those are those are really picked up um, in in these prints to great amusement. <laughs> <laughs>
And, and similarly, thinking of connections to publications like the Beano, you mentioned in the book how uh, not only was their work sold as prints, but you could also get kind of a bound collection of a number of prints together. And that feels like yeah. the birth of modern comics, you know, yeah, buying yeah. an entirely visual, humorous publication. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so by sort of the 1810s, there are these, this guy called um, Ackerman who, who kind of develops these much kind of more expensive or more kind of sophisticated images but they but yeah he does sell them in these these packs um, and you kind of collect them but yeah I suppose by the end of it people would have a book and they would flick through it the other thing is that you know often the prints were rented out for the evening so you mm. could if you were hosting a ball you could host you could rent out some prints and oh, they wow. would just be like entertainment for the table make sure so, that everyone wore gloves uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know? I know and I think um, yeah I think I'm sure that they had some problems with lots of coming back with lots of red wine on it or something. well indeed <laughs> But I, I guess, you know, so I think like between people dancing, they would, they'd be able to look through these books or look through these packs and, um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very similar in some ways. Mm. And in terms of uh, literally you getting your hands dirty, there's a section <laughs> in the book where you have a go yeah. at doing kind of like acid etching. What was, yeah. what was just because you wanted to see yeah, what the experience well, was like? I think it's always good in these historic, you know, anything, doing anything from the, the past. It's, it's like when you write about it, it's always so abstract and then it's just easy. I always find you just go and do it or go and look at the place and you suddenly clock like it's some really important factor of it. Um, yeah, so I did a, a course in Covent Garden, um, an etching course. Um, and yeah, it was, I mean, it's hard. It was quite <laughs> difficult. It was really difficult. And it did make you think, you know, you if you had been educated at the Royal Academy schools, it would be very useful. And, you know, this is something that's not just like anyone can have a go at it. It's like, you know, it really made you appreciate the way that you see, you know, when you look at a Gilray image, you're really like, oh, that is someone who's an expert. Mm. And that is someone who's been properly trained as a real professional in this field. Um, but yeah, it was great. For, yeah, it was really fun. And you have to do, you know, it was, it's quite funny putting the plate in the acid bath. So that's part of the process. You put it in this acid bath. Obviously today you have to wear like science goggles and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Uh, this is quite funny, and there was a lot of brasso. It's kept like using, using brasso for some reason. I can't remember quite what you know. So there were some obviously modern uh, alterations to the process, but um, yeah, it's great. It's really good, good experience to try and get a sense of how they worked. Mm. And, and and the other thing is like it's when I was doing it, you know, the the kind of the the lines are very natural. It, it, it kind of makes sense. The lines that you see in the images are a result of that process because my lines look very similar to the way that Gil Gilray would do it, you know, and you could see exactly that that's how, you know, it, it, it all made sense in some ways, I think. Mm. Yeah. But we shouldn't expect a side hustle from you as a printmaker. No, I think maybe that's just a bit, <laughs> a bit far off. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, you know, you've got a, a brilliant and well-deserved reputation for kind of doing podcasts, for doing videos in a way that kind of speaks to a younger audience. Mm. Um, reading the book, you've brought a lot of that kind of vernacular to the way you're writing, which I think is really exciting in a history book. But have you had any kind of like pushback from kind of like dustier historians saying, <laughs> well, this isn't the way you should write a history book? Or yeah. have they been very kind of welcoming that the form perhaps is being opened up to a wider audience because of the way you kind of tell tales from history? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And to be honest, I just wrote the book and I didn't really <laughs> think about it. And then it, it, it was almost more the comments after that made me think, oh, I suppose that is actually quite strange to, to write it in that way. I just sort of wrote it as if I was talking to someone. Um, mm. 
but yeah, I mean, it is, it's got a lot of like kind of references, it's got a lot of kind of side notes. Um, and I think some reviewers found that very uncomfortable, you know, they, or they just thought it was like not appropriate. <laughs> some people called it things like childish. Um, but, you know, and, and so I found that, I, uh, but you know, the, the more that kind of reviewers say things like that, it makes me think I should definitely do it more. Because mm. it's, it's almost like a teacher telling you like, no, don't do that. That's not the appropriate thing to do. And you feel like, well, if that's not the appropriate thing to do, then we should try and do it and see what, see what happens. Um, and I, you know, and a lot of people on, you know, a lot of people who've actually read the book who are just like punters, um, seem to really enjoy it. You know, on Amazon, all the reviews are really, really good. And people seem to really like that kind of entertaining aspect. Mm. I mean, I personally think that history books are written in quite a straightforward way in general. Um, I think they're, you know, as books go, they're never, okay, you know, they might be accessible in that you might be able to, yes, I can understand what is being said, but they're not, they're never really entertaining or funny, <laughs> are they? I mean, like, I can't yeah. really think of any that are, are funny, you know, really funny um, in the way that other books that you read are funny, um, mm. you know, memoirs and all that kind of thing. Um, so I think there is definitely room for more, more, you know, entertaining history and history. The thing is, history is so funny. The things mm. that you read about it's hilarious. I mean, you know, you can't make up some of some of the stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm glad that I I feel like I have written a book in a way that I've never really read someone write a book in that mm. way, and I think that's worth worth. You know, it's in, it should be interesting for everyone whether they like it or not. I don't really mind, but it's kind of just an experiment to see what people yeah. think. Well, I mean, I think in terms of it being, you know, kind of like a valuable resource, I mean, you totally cover your back by having like a reference, you know, per sentence, like in yeah. a, inverted commas, well, uh, a proper history book. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it, it, it is accessible. So I think, yeah. you know, that seems to be a, a very kind of admirable thing to do. Oh, yeah. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think the, the footnotes and everything, that was almost part of like, part of it was just me making sure that I knew, like I could, I could work out, like remember where I was with everything. Because <laughs> it's so hard to lose track of, you know, when you're researching and things. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it is completely a proper history book. It's just, um, yeah, it's just written with a bit more pizzazz. And the thing is, I basically just put lots of weird anecdotes in and things. <laughs> and I thought, that, I just assumed the publisher would cut it out. Um, but they didn't credit to them, so you know they, they sort of they obviously thought it was all right. And um, yeah, I mean it's only a reflection of what Gilray would do. And I always think that with the with the publishers, you know, uh, with the reviewers, they say things like, "Oh, like, it's a very it's a very childish book." <laughs> you just think like, yeah, well, what would Gilray want? Like, what would Gilray do? He didn't get anywhere by just being like doing the book in every other you know the way that everybody else writes books. He did it by being totally original and and uh, risk-taking and weird and wacky and odd and strange. And so, you know, if there was ever a book that you would do that, it would be a book on Gilroy. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much. Oh, well, thanks so much. <laughs> Alice Loxton's book, Uproar, Satire, Scandal and Printmakers in Georgian London, which delves into the lives of cartoonists Thomas Rowlandson, Isaac Cruikshank and James Gilroy, is available from Icon Books, who you can find at iconbooks.com and in all good bookshops. Alice is a prolific historian and communicator whose short videos about the topic can be found on such platforms as TikTok and Instagram. And you can find a list of these on her website, aliceloxton.com. That's A-L-I-C-E-L-O-X-T-O-N.com. Alice was recorded at the Cartoon Museum on Well Street in London, 
where if you're interested in the origins of comics, it's well worth a look as they have examples of early satirical prints by the likes of Cruikshank and Gilray in their permanent exhibition, alongside temporary exhibitions which are currently on display in the gallery, including Norman Thelwell Saves the Planet, ecological cartoons by the popular horse cartoonist, and that runs until Sunday the 3rd of September. They also have an exhibition called She Is My Daughter, All of Her Is Me, looking at the art of artist Ella Barron, who worked with the NGO Médecins Sans Frontières in 2019, and that's on display until Sunday the 8th of October. And opening in September is an exhibition looking at 30 years of the wrong trousers, an exploration of the classic Ardman animated film, which runs from the 12th of September till the 15th of April 2024. The Cartoon Museum also have a number of events throughout the summer, including workshops on manga on Tuesday the 8th of August, a session training youngsters on how to make caricatures on the morning of Wednesday the 9th of August, and then that afternoon, a workshop on how to create superheroes. On Thursday the 10th of August, a workshop on how to make mini-comics. And these continue throughout August. If you're looking for ideas to get your kids out into drawing comics and educate them about the history of the medium. You can find more info about the Cartoon Museum by going to cartoonmuseum.org. And the museum is open Tuesday to Sunday from 10.30am to 5.30pm with late openings on Thursday until 8pm. Saturday the 5th of August is Small Press Day, which celebrates self-published comics with signings and events taking place at numerous comic shops around the country. At Gosh on Berwick Street in Soho, they have artists Gareth Brooks, Lando, Savage Pencil, Rachel Tubb, Will Humberston, Olivia Sullivan, Sean Azapardi, Douglas Noble, Dan White, Mark Stafford and more from 11am to 4pm. At Jam Bookshop, 61A Hackney Road on the corner of Waterston Street in East London, they have the likes of Sarah Gordon, Joe Stone, Manon Wright, Beatrice Mossman and others signing and talking about their work and running comic making workshops. And at various other chains such as Travelling Man in Manchester and Newcastle and Forbidden Planet in Dublin and Glasgow, you can find various other small press events taking place. For more info about Small Press Day, please go to smallpressday.co.uk. At Forbidden Planet Megastore on Shaftesbury Avenue, they have a signing of The Immortal Thor by writer Al Ewing on Saturday the 26th of August from 2 to 3pm. And then on Saturday the 9th of September, a launch event for the new comic The Devil's Cut from nascent publisher Distillery. And that's taking place on Saturday the 9th of September from 3 to 4pm. For more info about all Forbidden Planet events, please go to forbiddenplanet.com stroke plu stroke events. In Brighton, the next meeting of Cartoon County is taking place on Monday the 21st, where acclaimed artist Oscar Zarate will be talking about his new graphic novel, Thomas Girton, The Forgotten Painter. That's taking place in the back room of the Walrus Pub in the Lanes, with doors at 6.30pm, and my Q&A with Oscar taking place at 7.30pm on the 21st of August. 
Keep an eye on cartooncounty.com for more info about this event. Looking ahead to September, Gosh have a couple of signings with creators of genre comics. On Saturday the 2nd of September from 1 to 2 p.m., artist and writer A.C. MacDonald will be launching his new comic, Twistwood Tales, originally a popular webcomic, now appearing as a print collection. And then the following week, on Saturday the 9th of September, Cy Spurrier, Charlie Adlard, Sophie Dodgson, Jim Campbell and Tom Muller will be signing the new Supernatural series Damn Them All on Saturday the 9th of September from 1 to 2pm. You can find more info about all GOSH signings at their branch in Berwick Street in Soho by going to goshlondon.com stroke the dash gosh dash blog. Lakes International Comic Art Festival is returning to Bowness on Windermere from Friday the 29th of September to Sunday the 1st of October. Guests at this year's LICAF include Simpsons artist Bill Morrison, comedians Frankie Boyle and Josie Long, legendary Cerebus background artist Gerhard, acclaimed graphic novelists Brian and Mary Talbot, Walking Dead artist Charlie Adlard, superhero artists Michael Lark, Sean Phillips and Steve Parkhouse, and many, many more. For more info about the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, please go to comicartfestival.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find over 500 previous episodes of Panel Borders by going to our blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com. Keep an eye on our website for info about the broadcast date of the next episode. Until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.